There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode of How to Win an Election is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the only major UK airport owned solely for community benefit. The airport is the major employer in the region, supporting more than 27,000 jobs, and its contribution to local charities are 20 times more per passenger than any other UK airport. To find out more about the UK's most socially impactful airport, visit lutonrising.org.uk. Yes, we can podcast. Strike up the band! Politics really matters a lot, and it's certainly not a game. They used to say that I was Nick Clegg's brain. Sunak's campaign. He's designing a campaign which is all wokey-cokey. Yeah, here we are again then, doing the wokey-cokey. I'm Matt Jolly. This is How to Win an Election, your insider's guide to the huge political year ahead. Uh, joined, as ever, by new Labour architect Peter Mandelson. Hello, Peter. Hi, Matt. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. Uh, Polly McKenzie, otherwise known as Nick Clegg's brain, and Policy McKenzie is here. Also, uh, Nigella Lawson fangirl, who has brought Christmas cake. You have bought Christmas How are cake. you finding it? It's nice. It's quite I boozy. It. It's quite boozy. Yeah, Danny has refused to have my Christmas cake, so I'm not going to talk to him, right, just fine. to let you know. It's his New Year's resolution. Yeah. Is, yeah. What, is, what is to not eat any more... after tomorrow. Not, not eat any more of Polly's cake. Just to try not to eat anything that I don't absolutely have to eat. Right. Oh, Dan, Danny's also here. Tommy Brainbox, Danny Finkelstein's here. Uh, Happy New Year to you all. If you want to get in touch, you can email us howtowin at times.radio. Howtowin at times.radio uh, with all of your questions. So, uh, it's a new year. It's been called the biggest year for democracy since democracy began or something because uh, more than a third of the world's population will go to the polls in some form in 2024. Uh, we'll look at some of those uh, elections happening abroad in a moment. First of all, let's start back here. Big election year. Could be the autumn, could be May. Uh, Everyone still settled on when when they think it's going to be? I'm still a possible May man. Yeah. Yeah, and I still think it'll... They should go in May, but they won't. They'll go in in the autumn. Well, the the government has now briefed out that it will certainly be next year, which gives me even more confidence that it'll be. Sorry. Oh, yeah, that's what they said it last year. (laughs) What? But you still think it might be 2025. It might just cling on. Well, yeah, because they, they were so clear that it will definitely be in 2024, but didn't specify when. Yeah, I, I don't trust him. Should should Rishi Sunak rule out publicly a May election if he's not going to do one, or risk the sort of Gordon Brown, Bottler Brown thing? That if, if, if the idea that he's going to go in May gets legs, is that is that a risk for him? He should make sure to brief out that it's unlikely. <laughs> so, so as not to build up a head of steam, but he shouldn't rule it out altogether because he doesn't want to close down his options. He should if he doesn't want to go he'll he hold an election when it's in the best interest of the country. Yeah, but the problem then is... Is, is Matt's right. <laughs> that, that, that if you allow a story to build and build and build, you get trapped into sort of having not called an election you never intended to call. 
I think Labour is certainly thinking that way. They're quite enjoying stoking up the idea that there's going to be a mayor election. They're the ones briefing out that it's going to happen because for them it's win-win. Either they quite like to do it quite soon, frankly, or they get that the bottom. What gave it legs, though, Polly, was the calling the budget for March the oh, 6th. Oh, yeah, yeah. Mm. And that seemed to pave the way for an early election being called at the end of March for May. Um, I mean, I think that Sunak will be sort of punished either way. You know, if he rules out May, then the sort of running down the clock, the countdown begins, the media will be chasing him all over the place, yeah, all the way to the autumn. Um, if he doesn't rule it out and people are sort of left in sort of... Expectant expectation. I, I look either way. It's not great for him, but I wouldn't start speculating if I were Sunak about when the when the elections. Going I mean, to we've be. we've we've because you, you've posed this question to us, we've answered it a few times. Wouldn't you both agree that I mean, although we've each got our own choices of when you'd hold the election and which would be marginally better, it is quite marginal. I think. Where, where I always think when people start to start talking about turnout effects and the effects of dates and you know whether it matters whether the local elections is before or after a date, these things do matter a bit. I think they are pretty much. My guess well, would be pretty marginal. The mayor, the mayor, election, local government elections. If they are a disaster, they'll be very motivating for the Conservative sure, Party. It's, a a, it's not a lovely backdrop against which to launch an autumn campaign. But I also think the public are getting increasingly no. fretful mm. and irritated uh, by the their expectation or their knowledge that an election is going to come this year. They're feeling that it is necessary uh, to start a new chapter and that's been deliberately postponed yes. Uh, by uh, uh, by by the Tories for their own self interest. So that's why I would. That's why, and that's why I argue, as you know, that they would be better off having a May election for all those reasons. But I wouldn't say the effect will be that big compared to the other things that we've discussed and we will discuss that will influence the results, the outcome of the election. It's 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 an it's an it has an impact, I, but I would say it was marginal. Yeah, I think that's almost certainly true, unless something big happens. And I think the Conservatives are hoping that something big might happen that, that shifts the political uh, atmosphere. But, of course, it could be a thing that makes life better for them, but it could just yeah. as easily be a catastrophe that makes life worse for them. I think what's more important both for Starmer and Sunak is not to speculate about when the election is going to be, but to start sort of framing in their minds what the question is that they want to see uppermost in the voters' mind as they go into the polling booth whenever the election is called. And that framing should start now, indeed, I gather it's going to start this week because both of them are going to make speeches. They're all out and about. So, yeah, well, Keir Starmer's going to make a speech. Uh, Rishi Sunak is going to go and speak to real people. He, they're going Very to let, risky, Rishi, let Rishi be Rishi. Um, which we were sort of at that point in the doom loop of uh, somebody who's a long way behind in the polls where we were told to let Gordon be Gordon, let Ed be Ed. Um, go out and meet... Don't talk to the media. We've got to go and speak to real... If only everyone could meet Rishi Sunak in person. Yeah. Uh, so, and, and Gordon met Gillian Duffy in that, Rochdale. Can I ask this question of both of you, because it's more difficult for me, because I know and like him, to judge this. Do you think that's good advice to Rishi Sunak? <clears throat> so to Gordon Brown, I didn't think it was very good advice, let Gordon be Gordon, because I, or, and it certainly wasn't very good advice to Ed Miliband. Let Ed Miliband be Ed Miliband. I mean, it's all that try you can and, do. Try it's and all start you... the year being a little fair <laughs> no, no, to Ed Miliband, <laughs> will you, Danny? <laughs> no, it, what I'm saying is, it's all you can do, um, uh, and... Um, you know, it was also the, the, the problem for my, um, you know, somebody I very, very much admire, William Haig. It wasn't letting William Haig be William Haig, which was all that you could do. It wasn't going to 
move people. Do you think that if Rishi Sunak does get across his personality, it's a plus for him? In other words, this advice, let Sunak be Sunak, get across to real people. Let, let's put aside the question of whether, you know, he should or shouldn't do that. Let's assume that he does it. Would that help him? But I think we're jumbling up two things. The, the let Sunak be Sunak, let Bartlett be Bartlett thing, right, um, is, is one thing. that you, you cannot, in the end, make a... A, a person with, a, you know, one kind of character be different. You can't make Boris Johnson do his red box at night. You can't make uh, Keir Starmer very funny. You know, that y- you can only be your authentic self and you're probably best when you do that. But why is that the same as get out and talk to the voters one-to-one? Because, you know, someone like Bill Clinton was amazing mm. one-to-one, Magic. greeting people, Magic. doing town halls, could change the mood of a room and, and you would get footage of, of that personableness. Rishi Sunak's authentic character has many strengths to it, but they're not personableness with members of the public that he meets in the street. So I, I, I just don't understand why the well, two I things agree, have been equated. I agree with Polly. I think that if Sunak does this, he will come across as he usually does when he's with people, sort of awkward and rehearsed. Okay, so. I, I mean, I think that's the problem. I think he's got to do something rather different. I think he's got to construct a case for Sunak, for his government, and for the re-election of the Conservative Party. And he needs to start that this week. So th- th- there's this thought that this all comes from this let Bartlett be Bartlett. But in fact, it comes from, from let the West, Ray- for the it West comes, well, it, Which yeah. it doesn't. It comes from let Reagan be Reagan. And let Reagan be Reagan, which was the original use of this phrase, was a, a, a campaign, proposition, a campaign by the right in the Conservative Party against his more centrist advisers that Reagan should be his authentic conservative self. Let Reagan be Reagan. The reason I think let Ed Miliband, for example, be Ed Miliband is I think authentically Ed Miliband was well to the left of where he then decided to present himself and therefore it wasn't good advice for him. And I think also with Gordon Brown, uh, letting Gordon Brown actually be what he really was would have also moved him, you know, against, against, for example... uh, the, the agenda of sort of more austere spending that Alistair Darling uh, put in place. So it was not discipline. good advice yeah, to, the, yeah. to him. And the question about whether letting Sunak be Sunak is good advice is not so much let Sunak be Sunak uh, would make him look awkward. It's the question of where, whether him expressing his authentic politics D- Danny, would what good. would it be? Exactly, that's Sunak, exactly the question. What would it be? We've already <laughs> got a slight exactly problem the in the, him going out and being completely spontaneous with members of the public on Thursday. We've been told in advance what he's going to say because they've briefed the Times today, Tuesday, which sort of slightly undermines the idea he's just going to spontaneously yes, but react. but I don't think that's what it means. I think, I think letting Sunak be Sunak, as far yeah. as I was concerned, would be to let him... St- say what he really thinks. So what do I think his actual politics are? I think he is quite small state conservative. Uh, so he's a fiscal conservative. And I've always said to him, you're a fiscal conservative like I am, but you're at a lower level of public spending and tax than I am. I think he's relatively socially liberal. I think he's quite conventional in terms of the rule of law and not and not doesn't have a populist uh, uh, position. So he'd be resistant on to make, for example, woke... Uh, the wokey-cokey, um, <laughs> the, uh, in which he'd be more likely to be out than in. Um, 
he's less likely to make that as a sort of centerpiece. Um, I think some of this tech bro stuff that he's accused of, he regards as an asset and would project. So the question is whether that combination, yeah. uh, given the Conservatives' position, is really a viable one for him. It probably isn't. Polly, do you think Rishi Sinat would be doing better if he'd got Dominic Cummings on board, as we discovered he discussed at the weekend of the Sunday Times? Well, I, th- I think there's, there's two aspects to that. The first is, would he be better in terms of his policy stance? You know, as, as far as Cummings has briefed it out, it's something to do with cutting taxes and putting more money into the NHS, which was the sort of reality-defying <laughs> That's, what, every- <laughs> that's that what everyone wants. There was the- taxes and more money. Okay. Well, exactly, but at the core of what of yeah. what Boris Johnson uh, was a, a sort of attempting to, to pull off, um, and I certainly think that from a uh, a political perspective that is appealing to the public, it is of course not really possible to pull off, and so and both as a personality level and also then in terms of setting up a policy conflict with his party, I, I think that he would just be struggling so badly to hold that Conservative parliamentary party together if he had brought this kind of public enemy number one for quite a lot of them back into the tent, especially when he promised explicitly that he I, wouldn't. I look at it in a slightly different way. I mean, first of all, I think that bringing outsiders you know, into the tent and asking them from... You know, they have a detachment. They can offer a helicopter view uh, and they're sometimes much better at sort of expressing a direct, clear-cut view than some of the people inside the tent have, have, have grown accustomed to doing. And I think that what the Conservatives need is a clarity of purpose and strategy. They need cut-through. And that means a very clear, decisive conclusion about what sort of campaign they're going to mount what the question is they want to be uppermost in voters' minds when they go into the polling booth. <clears throat> and I think that, you know, toxic as he is, you know, he is a fairly practised and well-experienced campaigner, uh, uh, Cummings, and I think he could bring uh, uh, that clarity. Another thing he could bring is this. What he shares with Rishi Sunak is an in- intense dislike of Boris Johnson <laughs> and and of Liz Truss. And you see, what I think about Sunak is that he's got... To get that cut through, he's got to reconstruct a narrative, a story about himself rooted in his time as Chancellor and his early time as uh, Prime Minister where he was clearing up the mess created and left for him by Johnson and Truss. Now, I think, therefore, in order to make the case for Sunak and all the remedial action and policies he adopted uh, after the disaster of those two prime ministers, he's got to contrast himself with those prime ministers. He's got to show what he did to clear up the mess. Now, that is not comfortable for the party, but I do think it's something that the country uh, uh, would appreciate and would like to hear, and they would much better see the case for Sunak as not Johnson, not Trust, the guy who cleared up things after they'd gone. That that would sort of come strike home to them much better than sort of, you know, are you a small state, big state, what Mm. level of taxation? He's got to say something that the public will understand. Yeah, I, I, I would agree with that. And so the question is, I mean, let's soon be soon like is different from let's soon be Cummings, uh, and, I mean, uh, and, and that's that's very important, right? Because he, if you if he, you can see from the things that well, Dominic Cummings is not saying um, in, in this weekend, you know 
bring me in and um, we'll together devise a strategy that will work. He says, I've got a strategy, and if you want to adopt it, you, could, you should bring me in. Uh, but it's not the strategy that sits comfortably okay. with who that, Rishi Sunak is. That is the risk of Cummings. Uh, yes, I mean, it's only one of the risks of Cummings. <laughs> uh, so, uh, but get out the, to, to, just to be clear, Dominic Cummings is, is very clear thinking and clever. Uh, and, and, I, and I've, personally, I read a lot of his stuff. I find it completely con compelling. But, but he wouldn't be my first choice as my kind of aide and confidant just because of the record that he's got. Can I ask you uh, a question? He's a much better at writing these things down than he is at that. Can I ask you a question? Yes. Do you think Cummings would say to Sunak, you know, there are two variations of a theme here for your campaign. One is, you know, Britain's turning a corner. It's getting better. Don't let Labour ruin it. It's a risk with Labour. But premised on Britain's sort of going in the right direction, or should he just say, "Look, we all know, not say literally, we all know that Britain's gone to hell in a handcart. Um, you know, it's it, we're in a serious situation, serious mess here. It's going to take everything you know we've got to throw at this to make it better, better the devil you know in the Conservatives than the devil you don't." I think you would say, "Britain's going to hell in a handcart. Don't let Labour ruin it." Um, and, <laughs> So I do find it. It's a lot somewhat a problem, so it's yeah, an, yeah, yeah. an inconsistent message. Well, uh, that's the uh, that's the view of the UK election. Up next, we're going to take a look at some of the elections around the world. Everyone's brought in an election to talk about. So we'll do that next here on how to win an election. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. This episode of How to Win an Election is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Don't forget, if you're enjoying How to Win an Election on the podcast, you can listen to it live on Times Radio every Tuesday morning from 10, and you can catch Politics Like the Boring Bits every single weekday, Monday to Friday from 10 till 1, Find me on Times Radio, on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, or download the Times Radio app. Now, though, it's back to this week's episode. (music) 
Yeah, it's hard to win an election with me, Matt Jolly, joined by our political masterminds, Peter Madison, Polly McKenzie and Daniel Finkelstein. While we've been talking, Phil in Blackpool's been in touch. Could you ask your panel, have they seen or heard from Ed Miliband? and discussed his policy with him, and will it be in the manifesto? So, uh, Peter, let's be fair to Ed Miliband. Uh, which policy are you talking about? <laughs> I, think, I think he means the £28 billion uh, green package, okay. which ever since it's been announced, no one wants to talk about the Labour Party. I don't think that's right or fair. I, 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 look, I'll tell you what I feel about it. I feel it's an area, uh, it's a commitment which is going to come under very, very sort of relentless bombardment from the Conservatives. Uh, and therefore, Labour has to make it bulletproof. It has to stress test it. Uh, I personally uh, support the concept of borrowing to invest. I think we will not get out of the economic mire we're in without raising levels of both public and private investment uh, in the country. Uh, I think that Rachel Reeves is right, however to say that this commitment will be subject to some very strenuous fiscal tests. I mean, she wants to see uh, debt as a proportion of uh, GDP falling over the parliament. Uh, she will judge whether how much borrowing a Labour government could take on uh, against both the overall economic performance of the country and whether the economy is growing, uh, but also with the cost of that borrowing, what interest rates uh, are. So I think th those are the governing rules that she subjected the £28 billion so to. Would it and if it needs better if it hadn't been announced so in the first place? I think the concept was absolutely sound. I support it. I personally wouldn't have chosen a figure uh, because I think that your ability to pursue uh, this uh, policy of investment and borrowing to invest, which as I say I think is right, will depend on the economic circumstances at the time and therefore to sort of pre-announce a figure so far in advance uh, was was not realistic. But we'll see uh, if it needs further clarification, I'm sure it will receive that it. That figure so, that has been a gift of the Tories. Yeah, so we, well, we're putting our finger on really the Labour's strategic question, right, which is um, they got this, the £28 billion is pretty much one of the very few things they're big things they're saying. So, uh, is it better to say what to say some big things where you can get attacked, um, but you are saying some big things, or is it better to say almost nothing? Uh, and um, if you say almost nothing, you have Labour's big vulnerability, which is its only vulnerability really in this election, which is people think either they know what they think and they aren't saying, or they don't know what they think. And, I, and then the electorate aren't sure which of those is worse. And they think that about Starmer. If I was Sunak, it's almost the only glint of light for the Conservatives, that. And it's a strategic dilemma that's impossible for oppositions to avoid. But now Labour has to face it, I think, with this £28 billion. It's quite a good test case. My choice, I think, along with Peter, would be probably um, to, to, to do reassurance. I think the Tories are in enough trouble that it would be better to effectively end up saying nothing, take the heat for that, make the Tories chase you over nothing and say you're dangerous but be able to say, well, we're not, you know, people then sort of saying they're vague. It doesn't, that attack wouldn't really hold. And so I, that would be my inclination. I wouldn't have the figure, I would play down the policy and I would take the heat for that. That's probably how I would play. Electorally, let's leave aside people are listening to this thinking how aggravating that is for them as voters but I'm talking about the Labour Party making an electoral choice but I think I think Labour were emboldened in the first place to make that choice of a number by the Inflation Reduction Act of Biden in in the US of just pumping 
billions and billions of dollars into sort of broadly green uh, infrastructure. And I think that Labour do need something, not too many things, to build a sense of optimism and momentum and enthusiasm about what might change in the country as a result of of their um, their election. Uh, and, and this is, as Danny says, is one of the few things where they've really crystallised an idea. It is risky. There is always a kind of differential risk that governing parties and opposition parties face. You know, we're going to have a, a budget in March. The budget will end up moving around 28 billion yeah, or yeah, something yeah. around like that. And everyone just sort of looks at it in and, and sort of says, oh yeah, that's fine. The, you know, the government is proposing, has a black hole for billions of pounds worth of public spending cuts that Labour can attack them on. But it, it, it seems so sort of amorphous that it's hard to. Whereas when you're in opposition, you know, certainly when I was working for the Liberal Democrats, we'd make a commitment for like, you know, four million pounds or something, a rounding error, and then suddenly an explosion of literature <laughs> criticising you for your kind of reckless spending. Yeah, but Polly, you've got to remember where Labour's come, come from. You know, Jeremy Corbyn, all the extremists, the momentum organisation, the far left who dominate, captured the Labour Party's leadership and dominated it. Keir Starmer has got to provide absolutely cast-iron evidence that Labour has changed, that he has taken the Labour Party out of the grip of uh, Corbyn uh, and all that that represented, including spending zillions on heaven knows uh, what. So he's absolutely core to Starmer's strategy is reassurance, uh, in my view, and he's got to pursue that right up until um, uh, uh, polling day in order to, to win. But as Times focus groups have also indicated... Uh, during the last year, people are unsure what Starmer and the Labour Party stand for. So what I would do additionally is sharpen up the policy side, sharpen up the policy offer that Labour's making. I'm not talking about encyclopedias of sort of <laughs> detail of, you know, which, over which the Conservatives will sort of run riot. But I think that what he has in the five missions... Uh, are very good building blocks for this. And I think as the election comes nearer, he'll probably, from within the five missions, need to focus perhaps on two. One certainly would be the economy. I would suggest the other is the National Health Service. And I think that that combination of reassurance and the sort of sharpening up of the offer is what we need to see uh, from Starmer in the coming months uh, if he's going to allay those public fears. He needs trust, above all, given where we've come from. But he also needs to make a bit clearer what you're voting for Labour to get. Is it, is it a problem, though, that as we go into the election year, we're still at the stage where people don't really know what Keir Starmer's all about? Well, your focus group suggests yeah. that. I think that that is becoming less of a problem, uh, but it is still nonetheless uh, an issue, uh, and I think that the Labour uh, strategists have got to address it. I don't think it is becoming less of a problem. So I, I, I just think, I think it's inevitable for two reasons. One is it's that all oppositions will face this problem, the choice between being alarming to people and people thinking they stand for nothing. But secondly, <laughs> Keir Starmer has a particular problem because he doesn't know what he thinks about lots of things. And he's still making up his mind. He is moving. If you look at his, you know, anybody, challenge anybody to read a biography of Keir Starmer, as I have done on two occasions, and reach the <laughs> end of it and think, I, I really understand where this guy's coming from. Uh, I just don't. Uh, and I think um, that is definitely a problem with him. Uh, we, we had this problem, by the way, just now with Rishi Sunak. We would, lots of politicians have this problem, but I think he has it particularly acutely, and that is definitely a weakness. So set against 
the strategy that he's pursuing. Can I which half is, agree with Danny? Is, half agree with Danny. I think Danny, he knows a lot more of what he thinks and what he intends to do than you give him credit for. But here's the point. I think Keir Starmer has been on a journey since he became was elected leader of the Labour Party okay. in 2020, you know, three, uh, three years ago. I think he's been confronted with issues and policy areas that he hadn't th- had to think about very deeply beforehand, not just in the foreign policy sphere and in international national security, but in other areas too. And I think he shouldn't be afraid of saying, actually, I have rethought some things or I have developed my views or I have been on a journey or, you know, confronted with this. It has challenged my previous thinking. That's better, isn't it, than in pretending that, that he didn't want to say that this was what what he thought and now this is what he thinks and those two things are now opposite. It's okay, right, to have him not to have thought deeply about how to make the transition to a net zero economy when he was Director of Public Prosecutions, right? Like, I'm, <laughs> yeah. I'm fine it's with that. a good point. But that's where this is such an obvious place to add economic credibility and your kind of green credentials and have a story that is about growth and opportunity and investment. And so for all of what Peter and Danny have said, that seems to me to reinforce the idea that they should not resile from this commitment, even if, of course, you can't, you don't just get in and spend 28 billion on day one because that is a really surefire way to waste money. You have to build up, you have to have credible projects, you have to have uh, like good fiscal tests, good investment tests mm. for it. But they should, they absolutely should not water yeah, this yeah. down to the point of, of homeopathic disappearance. <laughs> <laughs> now, obviously, we've talked a lot about what's happening in the election, we assume, this year, uh, unless you believe Pauline is going to happen in 2025. Uh, but let's talk about, because it's one of the biggest election years in history, because more than 60 countries representing half the world's population, some 4 billion people, will hold some sort of regional, legislative and pre- presidential elections this year. So we've asked you all to bring in an election to talk about. And Polly, the one you've chosen comes first. So let's start with you. So on the 13th of January, the 26 million citizens, I guess probably not the children, um, but are going to the polls in Taiwan. Um, the president uh, from the uh, Democratic Progressive Party, Tsai Ing-wen, is stepping down at the end of her term of office. Um, and it's basically a competition between uh, the DPP, the Green uh, coalition uh, who are broadly pro-independence for Taiwan and the two blue parties, uh, the KMT, Kuomintang, uh, apologies to all East Asian listeners for my terrible uh, accent, um, and the Taiwanese People Part- People's Party. Now, there was in the autumn of last year a, a, a sort of lengthy discussion between those two blue parties who are more pro-China, uh, potentially pro-reunification, though it's quite complicated, um, about joining a ticket because between them they might have enough votes to be able to defeat the the DPP, which would be, of course, geostrategic importance because this status of Taiwan, which China claims ownership of and where the US has this strategic ambiguity about whether they would protect Taiwan against a Chinese invasion. Those coalition talks fell apart and so there are now three candidates um, and it did look like the DPP would be a kind of a shoe-in but actually the polls have narrowed. Uh, it's only 11 days from now. It seems it's possible that the DPP won't win but the whole debate is being massively affected by uh, I think what we're seeing increasing numbers of elections, which is disinformation, misinformation, um, AI-generated content, 
dominating social media, including on TikTok, and a lot of concern that that is being driven by China in order to get a more Chinese-friendly government installed in Taiwan. I mean, from our point of view, I think the outcome of the Taiwan election that we want is one that supports the status quo, mm-hmm. which is neither pro-independence or pro-reunification. Supports the status quo because that's the only one that will give stability to that part of the world and to the and for the rest of us. But it's so interesting the way the election, you know, elections being played out. There's lots of inf- disinformation from overseas, and actually, the, one of the big defining questions is outward looking. Normally, we think of elections being very domestic and you know, taxes and schools and hospitals, but like a, a fundamental question of your place in the world being that sort and, of And the, the tension, as you can imagine, uh, you know, from, from reporting in Taiwan is incredibly high, both because of the context of Ukraine, where, you know, a more Western-aligned government uh, came into conflict essentially with Russia and led to a Russian invasion, and also, of course, the escalations that we've seen in Hong Kong uh, over the last uh, several years in terms of China's mm. relationship there. Well, in fact, you mentioned Ukraine. Uh, so I'll come back a bit close to home, and, and, and the European... The EU elections taking place uh, to the European Parliament this year. This is your pick, Peter, in June. My pick because uh, every, all of the 27 member states of the European Union will be having elections this year for the European Parliament. Uh, it may not be an overwhelming turnout, but there will be, a, in effect, a referendum in each of those countries on the performance of their national governments. It will be like a sort of midterm verdict that's being offered. And I think from what you can see at the moment, if you look at the sort of big four member states, in Germany, um, the centre-right and far-right AFD look as if they're doing well. In France... Uh, uh, Macron running out of steam slightly and the far-left party headed by Le Pen ahead in the polls. Italy, Maloney doing well with her far-right group. The only of one of the four is Spain, uh, which has a sort of left-led government and the left may well do better uh, in Spain from a very low uh, base from the previous election. And I think the outcome is going to be this. You will see... The centre parties and the Greens doing less well than they want, somewhat in retreat, and the further right parties are gaining. And I think the implication of that for policy is that uh, immigration, migration, will be become an even bigger issue uh, in, in Europe than it is at the moment. I would say it's broadly about number one on the EU's agenda uh, for the and will remain so for the next uh, four years. But I think the other consequence is that with the Greens sort of slightly receding, I think that those parties on the right who are concerned about the costs of the net zero transition, the energy transition, uh, on businesses and consumers... Uh, will start to sort of quibble and, and and they'll be they'll be saying look come on is this the best way does it have to be done at this breakneck speed does it have to be done with these costs can't we wait for sort of technology and innovation to emerge to see whether we can do this in a simpler way i'm not saying there's going to be a lowering of ambition but i think the influence that they will have will lead to a reconsideration of the route and the speed that 
change takes place. The interesting thing will be whether we can discern patterns at all, because often it just moves about in all sorts of countries due to <laughs> domestic factors. One of the most I mean, hilarious bits of television I've ever done was being on the BBC's European election night special. And it was honestly 2.30 in the morning, and Emily Mellis was in front of this big map explaining to people that they'd been a shift from the Latvian People's Front to the People's Front of Latvia. Uh, and it was, and I was sort of having, and then she would, they would come to me to comment, and I didn't know who either of these parties were. Were, you you didn't think that my distillation was, <laughs> yeah. no, it was might, simple it, enough? The, the, the truth is, I think, I think you're right. So I think there will be a, a, a shift towards populism uh, on the right, partly because there is, a, there is this shift going on in general in what the right-wing electorates are as they move from sort of more business-orientated parties to parties with a larger rural working class support which they've always had it's just a question of emphasis they've always had that to some extent it's really and obviously it's the first ones where we haven't taken part after we accidentally took part in 2019 because Theresa May forgot to leave uh, in time uh, Danny you've picked out because uh, you wrote in your column uh, in your Times column the, um, it's the American election not the British election which has the greater capacity to tear our ship of state from its moorings yeah I feel a bit clunking after you've both chosen such sophisticated examples to be true I went for the blindingly obvious but I but I <laughs> But I do, you know, despite sort of getting embarrassed when I saw what you were going to choose and thinking maybe I should choose something more exotic, <laughs> uh, I've come back to this because I do think it is pretty critical. Yeah. Um, I, I think, you know, so there are some people who think Dominic, uh, uh, Dominic Cummings, Donald Trump will certainly not be elected um, as uh, that was a Freudian, a Freudian slip. Uh, Donald Trump will certainly not be elected uh, because, you know, he is, uh, you know, he's so obviously unsuitable for office. He's going to be, you know, halfway to jail by then and prosecuted. He's too old. Uh, you know, it's obvious he's going mad, that sort of thing. I've had all that since I wrote my column. Uh, I, st I absolutely do not think you can rule out the really quite large chance that he will win the presidency because he will very likely be the Republican candidate. I think that's overwhelmingly likely. That, and then if you're the Republican candidate and there's a Democrat president, you've got a very good chance of winning. Uh, and if he did win, the consequences for the Western alliance, which he would then be the sort of... Uh, De, de, de facto leader just because of their defence expenditure and our historical links um, will be in crisis and this will affect everything that we do in the world, on the world stage. Can I tell you uh, about the WhatsApp exchange I had with the legendary uh, Republican pollster in the United States, Frank Luntz, yes, please. Uh, over the weekend. He said of Trump, the more indictments, the higher he climbs, the more people that kick him off the ballot the better he does. <laughs> the wilder the claims, the more positive the responses. The truth is we are spiralling downward and there is no bottom. Yeah. And, and then he then end up, so shall we do an interview together on this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we might have him on Wait, in so interestingly, <laughs> interestingly, Frank, interestingly yeah. Frank at one point kind of championed the, uh, the, 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 the sort of cause of like Ross Perot and the kind of populist stream and he then came to the conclusion it was incredibly destructive. Yeah, I think it's partly, partly because of the international influence of it. Well, plenty for us to look at there. The US elections, the European Parliament elections and Taiwan, which comes first. Uh, Polly McKenzie, Peter Madison, Daniel Finkstein, good to see you all. Looking forward to this year, it's going to be exciting. That was How to Win an Election.
Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 